Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Sterling Murray about his biography of the 18th century composer Antonio Rossetti, entitled The Career of an 18th Century Kapellmeister, The Life and Music of Antonio Rossetti. Sterling, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Mark. I'm very happy to have an opportunity to chat with you. And we're, ha- we're uh, happy to uh, offer you this opportunity because I have to say it is a truly excellent book. Well, thank you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, Yes, I am uh, currently retired after 36 years of teaching at uh, Westchester University in Pennsylvania. Uh, I am continuing to be active with my research, including Rossetti. There's more that I believe needs to be said. Uh, And that's uh, what I'm doing these days. What was it that led you to write a biography of Rossetti? Well, this is an interesting question. Uh, It dates back to my days as a graduate student uh, when I was searching for an appropriate dissertation topic. By appropriate, I meant something that I was interested in, but also something uh, where the materials were available to me. Uh, My general area of uh, interests and concern uh, had had been and continued to be the late 18th century, particularly instrumental music. I'm a clarinetist myself, so that made it more appealing. And in searching around for a, a possible topic, I hit upon Rossetti, who seemed not to have uh, attracted any attention at all. Uh, and in looking through his music, what was available at that time, uh, I was struck by the quality of his work. So I undertook a study of his symphonies and finished that as a dissertation in 73, 1973. Uh, there wasn't really much available on Rossetti. There had been a dissertation written by a German, uh, Oscar Kahl, but it dated back to 1912. So it seemed to be a good area of of interest. Uh, There was a good bit of music. There was also archival material, which was important to me. Uh, I continued working on that project, on Rossetti, expanding my interest in his work uh, and produced a thematic catalog that is uh, a sort of accounting of all of the music of Rossetti that uh, I could locate in European and American archives, both in manuscript copy and in prints. Uh, That catalog took me quite a bit of time, and I finally finished it in 1996, so there was a a big um, period of time there involved in research. So um, it's a definitive catalog in that it identifies not just all of the music of Rossetti, but also the kind of paper it was written on, who, uh, who the copyist might have been, what arrangements were done, and all the published music as well. So it's really a repository of information for those people interested in uh, learning more about Rossetti and in performing his music. Uh, it's mostly really intended for scholarship, but certainly has attracted a lot of attention uh, from uh, performers. Uh, and so at that point, then it seemed logical to fill in the missing parts and to finish my work on Rossetti by investigating uh, his other music and uh, and his life. Uh, so that was a project that I finished as the book in question in 2014. So in all, about 44 years of research. One of the things that I find very fascinating about your book is that 
it's clearly uh, the work of, of decades of of immersion in Rossetti's life and times, and yet, as you uh, are explained very early on, there's not a whole lot that we can really ascertain about the details of Rossetti's life, uh, especially when it comes to his early years. I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining what it is we do know about Rossetti's years and, and also what it is we can infer based upon uh, some of the, uh, the environment in which he lived. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, part of the problem with Rossetti uh, and doing research uh, on this particular figure is that uh, there are some there were some misconceptions and misinformation uh, about Rossetti that needed to be clarified early on. They were not easily uh, found uh, corrections, unfortunately, and they were quite basic. I I think I have solved some of these problems, but that was a, a hurdle early on. For example, the name itself, Rossetti, was being at that time when I was working on this material, being equated with a composer by the name of Anton Rusler. Uh, basically, Rossetti being assumed as the uh, Italian uh, form of, of Rusler or Little Rose. Uh, that uh, is what one was encountering in all modern um, encyclopedic uh, sources. Uh, and it, from the very beginning, it was difficult for me to accept. Uh, it was based on the notion that other uh, bohemian, we would say Czech composers of the period, and that would include Rossetti, uh, were um, uh, at uh, disadvantage uh, having German uh, names uh, and preferred to change their names to Italian versions. Uh, the man by the name of Stick, who later became Punto, the horn player, is a very good example of this. So this is one reason that this equation of names was readily accepted. Uh, it turns out that that is fact in not the case. Uh, I was able to identify a specific uh, reference to Rossetti and explanation of this situation in an 18th century journal. So his name really was Rossetti. That posed another problem because we knew he was from uh, what is today the, the Czech Republic. Uh, so why did he have this Italian name? Uh, and uh, that uh, I I came up with um, a, a possible explanation for this, but I can't I can't prove it. So it's a good example of this uh, difficulty in tacking down information. Uh, I believe that Rossetti was um, the uh, son of a um, of a Czech or Bohemian uh, mother and an Italian father, maybe one of the Italian workers that came to Leitmeritz uh, uh, in order to work on the refurbishing of the cathedral there. That's really just a theory. I can't prove it. But it shows you how fundamental the problems were. Life dates were also conflicting. So all of this had to be uh, had to be uh, accounted for before uh, I could actually begin my my work on this composer. Uh, but when I finally did um, have his life intersect at the Wallerstein court, then I had the advantage of. Uh, excuse me, of a great deal of archival uh, documentation that no one had bothered to go through. But when I did, I found that it was very helpful in piecing together parts of the composer's life. The fact that I didn't have an absolute picture uh, is not that unusual with uh, figures from the 18th century. We are a little spoiled with Mozart because uh, Mozart traveled a great deal. And in order to keep his his father in particular um, uh, informed of what he was doing, he wrote a great number of letters and the family retained the letters so we can reconstruct his life with some precision, much more than with most other figures uh, such as Rossetti. Uh, 
Now, I'm not sure if that's actually addressed your question fully or if I should continue. Uh, it, no, it, it has, because I, I think you've explained some of what you're doing in the book, because to a very real extent, you can't really recount, you don't really recount Rossetti's life because in many ways we can't. What you do is you reconstruct the world in which he lived. And it's a very fascinating world. As you described, the uh, functioning of, and I apologize if I mispronounce this, the, the Hofkapelle. Uh, Capel and, and and how these Hofkapels worked, and it speaks to the uh, work environment in which Rossetti is. I mean, nowadays we live in a world where musicians perform; they uh, they they uh, make money off their performances for audiences. But in the 18th century, musicians had to go about living a very different way. I was wondering if you could explain a bit that world in which uh, Rossetti lived, and, and and in particular the the Hofkapel of the uh, of the Wallenstein Court. Yes, of course. Uh, you're absolutely right in pointing out that the distinction between composers and performing musicians today and those in the 18th century uh, is is really a very sharp one, uh, a distinct one. And it's necessary to understand this difference uh, in order to uh, really appreciate uh, the quality of their music and the direction of their music. Rossetti was one of those musicians of the day who uh, found employment uh, throughout his adult life uh, at courts within the context of a court. Uh, and consequently, he's, he's really a, a very good example. If you didn't have a job at court, uh, you could be employed by a theater. You could be, of course, a church musician. And he, there were some possibilities of being independent, of an independent performer, uh, these are figures who traveled around from court to court, city to city, uh, performing and eked out a living this way. This wasn't really desirable. Um, uh, the fact that Mozart spent a great deal of his life trying to secure a court appointment is a further uh, underscoring of the fact that this kind of appointment was the stability that musicians needed, particularly composers. The Hofkapella is a um, is is really a department of a court. These courts, I should mention, are. Uh, sometimes large and well-documented, such as the Habsburg Court uh, in Vienna. But more often than not, they fall into a broader uh, range of, um, of, of centers, of political centers uh, in, in Germany. And I'm talking mostly about uh, modern-day Germany, uh, Austria, and the Czech Republic, which was all part of the Holy Roman Empire. Holy Roman Empire had these little uh, uh, establishments, courts uh, of the nobility that dotted the map uh, throughout the, this area. Uh, and, and they've often been overlooked uh, with the notion that 18th century music is essentially a Viennese uh, element. And, and that certainly is not true. Uh, the Hofkapella didn't all have musical uh, associations. Uh, it depended on the taste of the prince or the duke uh, or uh, whatever level of nobility uh, we might be talking about at that particular center. Rossetti was very fortunate in getting a job um, with uh, with a prince uh, who was uh, a musician himself. That wasn't so unusual, but also very interested in music and um, uh committed to supporting the music of of his court. So what was that music? Well, the the courts, these courts were divided into departments. Uh, and you could imagine that the Hofkapella is the music department of uh, of the prince, let's say, in this case, since uh, his major patron was Kraft Ernst, who was uh, who held the the rank of, of prince. Uh, this uh, division, this Hofkapella or uh, music department, was then further divided into uh, separate units, uh, and it provided 
basically the entertainment for the court because, of course, there were no recordings, there was no TV, and uh, that's well understood. But also, uh, there there were no public uh, concerts available at, at these small courts because they were often isolated, uh, unlike the, the court at Vienna or uh, the situation in Munich or Berlin. Uh, so, you, you actually, the prince needed to establish this element of entertainment. And lastly, and this is very important, uh, musical establishment or a Hofkapelle of some quality uh, would be evidence of the prince's taste and um, a significant uh, um, measurement uh, of his wealth and influence. The divisions of the Hofkapelle um probably are not necessary to go through. I just mentioned them so that you get a notion of what I mean by subdivisions. Uh, the, the most important rank within the Hofkapelle was a, a, a character, a figure who was identified as the Musik Intendant. This person would probably not have been a professional musician, but would have been uh, of aristocratic birth. Basically, uh, his responsibility is to keep what's going on in the music division um, in the mind of the prince and be the association between the two. Usually these figures were at courts where there was an opera troupe. Uh, the Wallerstein court did not have an opera troupe. They did have a music intendant, but uh, he really didn't have a conventional association with the music department. The head uh, of the music department, the person who, who did everything, was called the Kapellmeister. Uh, and this was usually a composer. He was responsible for a, a wide range of things uh, in addition to composing, but uh, he was the main conduit to the prince uh, uh, unless the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Kapellmeister had to um, consult with the music intendant, which at Wallerstein was not often the case. Uh, and then below that administrative level were the musicians themselves. It's worth noting that at Wallerstein, and this isn't unusual, the musicians were fell into two groups. There were professional musicians whose sole responsibility was to serve as a musician at court, but there were also servant musicians. These were people who had other jobs. For example, the pastry chef at Wallerstein was also a member of the court orchestra, <laughs> a, a violinist. Uh, this was a uh, this was the prince's way of you know, getting the most for the least uh, amount of, of uh, expenditure. Uh, and it was not un uncommon. Now, these were usually second chair musicians. They were not the stars of the court. So you wanted to hire someone uh, who was not only um, a proficient musician, but perhaps even a virtuoso musician. And the exceptional element of Wallerstein is that there were quite a few virtuoso musicians, particularly horn players. The horn was an instrument associated with Bohemia, today the Czech Republic, uh, and not surprisingly, uh, a, a fairly large percentage of the musicians at Bauerstein were actually Czech or Bohemian. Um, th this uh, is in, in indication of, of, first of all, family connections of the Wallersteins, but um, even more so of the quality of Czech musicians and the lack of enough appointments in the uh, bohemian uh, uh, aristocracy uh, to to uh, allow for uh, um, regular working conditions. Uh, that's a 
a complicated way of saying there just weren't enough jobs. So these musicians, very well trained in Bohemia, ended up going to Germany or to Austria or even to London and other locations seeking work. Another feature about the musicians at Wallerstein, and this is an important one, is that they tended to be families of musicians. So you don't just have one member of the family in most cases. Uh, For example, the Link family. Um, Link was a violinist, as were his three sons uh, and his wife and um, the, the uh, and a daughter uh, sang in the church uh, choir. So you were employing the entire family. And this is especially important because Rossetti, as a composer for this ensemble, uh, was composing for people that he knew uh, very well. Uh, they these were these were people that he um, he served as witness at weddings or a witness for a baptism. So it was really a discreet community within the court, uh, and, and this would allow Rossetti to uh, to tailor his music to the capabilities of these individuals whom he knew quite well. Uh, usually within the Hofkapelle was some some link with church music if there if there was a chapel. There there was a chapel at Wallerstein. The Wallerstein family were Catholic. Uh, and this uh, chapel did have a, a musical ensemble. They did draw on the court musicians, but it was separate of the court musicians in general. Uh, but the director or the what was called the Regent's Quarry um, was uh, actually taken. Uh, the position was always awarded to someone who was part of the Hofkapelle. Uh, Rossetti tried to get this position uh, multiple times during his career, and he was always unsuccessful uh, at achieving that. Uh, and then finally, there were the court copyists, uh, whose job it was to copy music that was either borrowed from other courts, copied and then returned, uh, or music that was uh, purchased in, um, in printed, um, reduced printed copies, and then manuscript uh, copies were made from that. So it really was a working organization. Rossetti was not only uh, the composer for the Wallerstein uh, Hofkapelle, but he also, early in his career, was a musician in the ensemble. Uh, when he was hired, he was technically hired as a violone player, that is, a player of double bass. I think we've made a lot out of this, assuming that that was his instrument. Rossetti was received his musical training in Prague uh, from the Jesuits, uh, and we know that music was an important part of the Jesuit education. Uh, and we also know that those with a special interest in music were expected to learn several instruments. So double bass is probably only one of the instruments that Uh, Rossetti could have performed on, and they simply needed one for the orchestra when they hired him, and that's the position he got. Uh, uh, My feeling, inclination, is that gradually he was... um, his uh, requirements, his uh, responsibilities uh, as a musician in the orchestra were overshadowed by his um, activities as a composer, and he didn't continue doing that. Indeed, by the end of near the end of his time at Wallerstein in 1786, he left there in 89, uh, he was appointed or at least assigned the responsibilities of Kapellmeister. Uh, so, of course, at that point, he would no longer have been performing uh, with the orchestra. One of the things you, you do in the book that I thought was very interesting is you chart the court, you, you describe the, you, you reference the correspondence between Rossetti and the prince. And it's interesting because it's so often taken up by financial issues that you describe the, the salary that the prince gave. And it was interesting how the, the prince seemed to be willing to uh, spend the money for a, a first-class Hofkapelle, 
uh, unlike, say, his father, who you describe, you know, sort of let it deteriorate a bit uh, during his time as as the uh, at the time he was the count. Uh, but about how Rossetti always seemed to be living beyond his means. And it, it, it was interesting how you use that to really get a sense of his life of someone who is a musician, who is in a, in a position that, as you described, uh, Mozart himself uh, had, the, had desired this sort of position. And yet even uh, – and yet Rossetti was still living beyond his means and, and facing all these challenges of, of, of living at, at, uh, on the salary that he was giving and constantly going to debt and dealing with all these other issues. And as you explained, it's not unique to Rossetti. It seemed like a lot of musicians had that issue. That's quite true. Uh, Rossetti did live as far as we can tell. Now, we don't have all of all of the details here, but based on what we do have, he, he did live beyond his means. I'm not sure that was a uh, 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 opulence necessarily. He had three children uh, and he had some serious health issues. Uh, and these health issues uh, appear to have been part of the reason that he, he didn't ever have enough money. Um, it, it's it, it, we, we can't be absolutely sure that he had that he didn't have the money and spent it poorly. Uh, but the fact that he doesn't seem to be unusual in this regard at Wallerstein really f- reflects more on the prince than on uh, Rossetti. The prince was interested in getting uh, the best musicians he possibly could get for his ensemble, but he also had a tendency to not want to pay for it. Uh, he was uh, reputed uh, as to not only uh, be a little stingy, but very slow in working through the responsibilities of his office. There is a um, a, a portrait uh, in words left uh, by his court li- librarian, not music library, but main library of the prince letting things go for a very long time until he had a stack of correspondence to deal with. Presumably within that would be payroll issues. Uh, and then he would uh, at the last minute, get to that and work through them all and in a, a particular uh, concentrated period of time. Uh, this might have caused some problems, too. It's possible that the musicians didn't receive their money on time. Um, all of this is speculation, I'm afraid. Uh, but certainly the issue of Rossetti's health had had a lot to do with uh, with his financial problems. As you describe, one that it, he was not necessarily dependent solely upon his salary, though, as uh, a court musician. Uh, you describe as well that these musicians oftentimes could travel, that they could uh, go perform elsewhere. And you describe the value of this to them and, not, and, and to uh, the, the court as well. I was wondering if you could explain uh, that in general terms and then get a bit into Rossetti's travels. Because as you describe in your book, it was in particular this trip to Paris that he undertakes uh, in the early 1780s, which is really a, a key turning point in terms of his reputation and, and, and his uh, stature as a composer. Uh, it, it, it's true that uh, court musicians in general, and certainly at Wallerstein, uh, were given opportunity to travel. And the assumption is that uh, they they were able to keep whatever funds they uh, earned uh, through their travel, but not necessarily the, the prince didn't necessarily pay these travel expenses. Uh, we don't know that to be absolutely the case, but I can't find any evidence of money being dispersed to individual musicians to go on tour. Uh, however, the prince uh, didn't um, – he wasn't opposed to allowing his musicians time off to travel because, of course, if they were outstanding musicians, they would go to another court and they would enhance his reputation uh, as uh, a patron of the arts. So it was – gratifying in both directions. Uh, the musicians themselves could then uh, 
if there were guests uh, of, let's say they went to the court of, uh, of another prince, uh, if the prince had guests there, uh, family or not, uh, it was possible that uh, one or more of these individuals might be particularly taken with the performance they heard and commission a work from that person. Uh, and that would mean money in the pocket of the traveling um, of the traveling musician. Uh, in a more altruistic uh, frame of reference, uh, this was also an opportunity to uh, expand the repertory of music from one court to another. So in the case of Rossetti and Wallerstein, a horn player who went on tour would be very likely to take a concerto, perhaps by Rossetti, most likely by Rossetti or one of his contemporaries. There were five composers at court. Um, take this work with them and perform it. And that would, of course, spread knowledge of the composer and his achievements. Uh, and this was, of course, desirable. Uh, we have a couple letters where people uh, wrote to Rossetti and said they had heard this or that piece um, and they wanted to uh, commission him to write a work for them. Uh, so this is another way that uh, this cross-pollination of musical style occurred. However, in order to travel, the musicians had to have the permission of the prince. They couldn't simply decide that uh, that they wanted to go somewhere. Uh, and uh, that was sometimes uh, awkward. Uh, and sometimes it wasn't convenient for the prince. Rossetti's made several smaller trips to local courts, uh, all of which haven't been documented, I'm sure, but some have. But um, in the period around the early 1780s, when his music was starting to take off, that is, he was getting published versions of, of his compositions. Uh, in 1779, the first print of three symphonies by Rossetti was released in Paris. Uh, and then he started to um, become better known. So he was in a, a better position to ask permission for a more extended trip. And he did. He requested time to go to Paris. Paris was the, the center uh, of uh, many uh, elements of music making. It was a place to be. Uh, the Parisian orchestras, there were several of them, public orchestras, were excellent and large and had wonderful reputations. There was, of course, the opera, several different um, types of opera available in Paris, and there was no opera available to Rossetti at Wallerstein. Uh, there was the opportunity to receive commissions from patrons of music, opportunities to have his music performed in chamber concerts, public concerts by these larger orchestras, contact with virtuoso musicians. For example, he wrote all of his clarinet concertos while in Paris, and that's clearly because there wasn't a clarinetist of virtuoso quality at the Wallerstein court. But most importantly, Paris was the center of music publication. And he used his time there, which was about a year, uh, to meet with various publishing firms and to establish contracts with them. Most importantly, Sieber, S-I-E-B-E-R, um, who ended up um, publishing a larger quantity of Rossetti's music than any of the other figures he had contracts with, including a set of six symphonies that the prince that he dedicated to the prince and sent home, uh, obviously with hopes of being able to extend his tour uh, longer, although he, he wasn't really able to uh, to achieve that. So Paris was a perfect place for him to be. Uh, and he made um, he, he made good use of the time he was there. Uh, when I mentioned the fact that <clears throat> you had to have uh, permission uh, to travel in, to any location, um, should point out that uh, in, in, at Wallerstein, there, there was a point early on where the prince's young wife died. 
1776, and all music was halted at court for a significant period of time. And at this point, uh, almost all of the musicians who were truly uh, held position as musicians, not servant musicians, uh, ended up going on tour. Uh, So this is a good illustration of when you could do it, you wanted to have an opportunity to experience uh, music in other areas. 18th century musical world was very mobile. Uh, We get the impression of it being static and in terms of a few islands of activity, Vienna being the primary one. But I think that's a false impression. We've been speaking a lot about Rossetti's life and the world in which Rossetti lived. I was wondering if you could perhaps speak a bit to his music. How did it fit with the trends of the time and how did it change over time? Uh, that's an interesting question. It's a it's a very <laughs> it's a very broad question. Uh, there's a great deal of, of music, but uh, I would say um, r- Rossetti's earlier pieces, let's say those composed up to roughly 1780, which seems to have been a turning point in his career, are uh, well-crafted pieces of music, although not necessarily um, wonderful. Uh, They are exceptional in any way. And then this 1780 period, including the year he was in Paris, started to produce some really magnificent pieces of music. Very unusual use of chromaticism, of counterpoint, uh, of unusual structural designs. Uh, It's almost as if he came awake to a a new world of uh, musical sound uh, and incorporated it into his own work. His music uh, from that point on, and to a certain extent a little before that, uh, becomes exceptional. Uh, He is not producing music that is typical of uh, of Kapellmeisters uh, uh, throughout Germany, at, at least throughout this period. This is really exceptional uh, music. I, I'd have to say as a footnote, uh, I, I didn't um, discover how exceptional until I was already more than halfway through my dissertation. Uh, I I realized then that, my gosh, I made a, a, a wonderful decision on identifying this composer and finding such really uh, beautiful examples of craftsmanship. Uh, the best way, I, I suppose, to get a notion of whether a composer was recognized as uh, exceptional or not, and, and I think we have to give credit to the period uh, that you know, if if music sold, uh, it was because it was meeting the taste and expectation of a purchasing audience. So one way to gauge what a composer's worth was in his own day uh, is through the publication of his music. Uh, Rossetti's music included 130 prints. That's a great deal of published music uh, for a man who had such a a short life, Um, uh, just a few years more than Mozart, actually, who is widely recognized as a composer who had uh, a a sadly uh, short lifespan. Uh, We also find that manuscript copies of his music in archives indicate to us uh, another level of popularity, even perhaps uh, a more important one, because here you have to go to the effort to secure the music and, cop- and copy it out. And today there are over 800 manuscript copies of his music that have survived in um, located in 260 archival collections covering 23 countries. Now, these statistics don't necessarily indicate that this is magnificent music. It does indicate that it's very popular music. 
Um, as far as looking at uh, Rossetti's production uh, from a modern point of view uh, and seeking to compare it, say, with Haydn and Mozart, whose uh, repertory is much better known to most people uh, today, um, in my estimate, uh, in any case, I believe that uh, that Rossetti was truly exceptional uh, in regard to elements such as orchestration, handling of the orchestra is really, really proficient, uh, especially in uh, his use of harmony, uh, very tuneful melodies, but harmonized in uh, advanced chromatic ways, and most especially in counterpoint, which is an element not normally associated uh, with the music of the uh, of the late 18th century, with perhaps the exception of, of church music. Uh, I, I have found uh, that uh, there are numerous uh, examples of originality and creativity in Rossetti's music that certainly separate him from the vast number of court composers uh, whose music I'm familiar with. So what you're describing is an exceptional individual. Was it Rossetti's growing appreciation of his own burgeoning reputation and his exceptionalism, which ultimately led him to uh, leave the court at Wallerstein? I, I think partially that was the reasoning. I, I, he was having uh, some serious financial issues uh, with the prince, and the prince was becoming uh, uh, very annoyed uh, with this musician. Uh, keep in mind that musicians were servants as far as their employers were were concerned, uh, even though he was very happy with what uh, Rossetti was producing, and he must clearly have been aware that this was a recognized talent. He still was annoyed that uh, he was constantly receiving requests for more money or advances in money or loans. Uh, and this was uh, making Rossetti's life at court awkward. Uh, and uh, he must have seen uh, an advertisement that uh, we can identify uh, in a music journal of the death of the Kapellmeister at a court in North Germany at the Mecklenburg Schwerin uh, Hofkapelle. Uh, and this must have looked uh, appealing to him. He asked for permission to take uh, one of these concert tours uh, to northern Germany without, of course, telling the prince that he was looking at another venue of employment. Uh, he, he secured that permission. And uh, on this trip, he apparently visited the Schwerin court uh, and uh, received very positive vibes about the possibility of applying for this position, which he did. This angered uh, Prince Kraft Ernst. Uh, he threatened to not allow him permission to go. Uh, it was uh, awkward and um, it, it just seemed to inflame Rossetti further. And so he did manage to make this change. Uh, I, I don't know that it was the court itself uh, that caused him to do this, although there there were um, very um, well-trained musicians there. What was different about Schwerin, and I'm sure this was maybe a, a sort of mixed blessing for Rossetti, uh, there really wasn't a, a vocal presence at Wallerstein. There were two musicians there who could uh, cover tenor and soprano parts in cantatas and that sort of thing. But it really, the fact that there was no opera meant that there was no need for outstanding singers. The, the opposite was true at Schwerin. Uh, they had a long tradition of, um, of choral music. 
it there. Uh, and this was going to be different for Rossetti. Maybe he found that appealing. Uh, it, it's hard to say. He had spent his entire career writing for instrumentalists. There was, of course, an orchestra at Schwerin, but um, Rossetti didn't write many works for the orchestra after he took this new position. Uh, his uh, music turns dramatically toward large ensemble pieces. Of course, this makes sense because this is what his employer wanted, and court musicians wrote what they were told to write. Uh, it wasn't their choice in most instances. And yet, as you describe, his years there are cut prematurely short because of his uh, illness, which ultimately leads to his death in the early 1790s. That's correct. Uh, Perhaps if he had had a longer lifespan, he may also have gone back to instrumental music uh, to a greater degree. I suspect not because uh, the other court composers uh, associated with Schwerin uh, also were primarily working, uh, producing repertory for uh, vocal performance. So I'm assuming this was because of the taste of, of the Duke. What exactly happened, do you think, that led his uh, reputation to fade uh, the way it did? And, and, and what led it to uh, come back to a degree? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, the it, This is um, something that, to a certain extent, is going to be emblematic of uh, most of the court composers uh, that we have we have knowledge of. Uh, Rossetti, his his health became much worse after locating in the north um, and he died in 1792 in June of 1792 um, probably as a result of a lung infection but he had had uh, many other health problems including a rupture in the abdominal wall uh, earlier on so he was not in, in, in good health at all but when he passed passed away, um, his music continued to be performed at Schwerin, uh, and to a certain extent um, for another, say, five or six years uh, at courts in, uh, in Germany. Uh, but then it faded. And your question is, why did this happen? Uh, the, I think the answer uh, circles around the notion of patronage. Uh, by the end of the 18th century, um, the idea of having your own orchestra uh, at court was considered uh, an expense that uh, probably could be eliminated. Uh, and these orchestras were often replaced by wind bands, uh, which provided the same function, but uh, were less expensive. And that's part of it. Um, Napoleon's conquest of the uh, southern part of Germany um, uh, and the uh, eventual um, disruption of the court system there, these small courts, um, also had uh, had a strong effect and uh, on on what was you know, what was uh, possible for um, employment for court musicians. So we're talking about in general terms, then the demise of the patronage system, the change of uh, economic role uh, at this period of the nobility uh, and the um, and and the, and the control, uh, the redivision of uh, political um, associations also in this period. But we can't overlook the fact that there, this is also linked with a, a general change in taste, uh, a move toward a much broader uh, expression, less chamber-like expression, uh, so that public theaters take on a greater role. Public theater is larger than the environment set aside for a court concert. Uh, and consequently, that's going to influence not only the instrumentation, but also uh, the uh, 
um, the general style of music that's designed for a broader uh, audience. The audience itself would be l less um, um, consistent than the audience that would have uh, been listening to Rossetti's uh, orchestral and chamber music. Uh, these people would not have necessarily have the training in music that um, aristocrats, noblemen of previous uh, times would could be assured of having uh, experience. So these larger concert halls and the change in the the general nature of the audience were naturally going to bring about a change in taste. That had something to do with it as well. The final nail in this coffin, however, is delivered by uh, the um, uh, idolatry that was associated with the music of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven. This sets in in the first several decades of the 19th century of E.T.A. Hoffmann, for example, uh, putting these three figures on a pedestal and not implying but um, just stating outright that um, the work of other figures is of no uh, real value by comparison. Uh, and that that sort of nailed it down. And the music of Rossetti and his many other contemporaries um, was soft-pedaled and for some marginalized and forgotten. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, yes, I'm uh, I'm doing a couple of things now. I'm finishing an edition of an oratorio that Rossetti wrote for the court at Mecklenburg-Schwerin, uh, Der Sterbene Jesus. Uh, it's um, it's a, I, I, I should say, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I misspoke, that he wrote for the court at Wallerstein. Uh, it's, uh, it's an earlier work, and it was um, redone and modified at Schwerin. Uh, but the edition that I'm preparing is an edition based on uh, this work written for uh, Kraft Ernst. Um, it's unusual because, as I said earlier, Rossetti didn't create a great deal of vocal music for the Wallerstein court. So this this is an unusual work, but it was an extremely popular work uh, known throughout uh, throughout 18th century uh, Germany and Habsburg uh, lands. Uh, I'm working on that, but I've also started work on a study of uh, music and music theater uh, in Philadelphia during the First Republic, during the period roughly after the end of the revolution. And uh, that is um, very interesting to me right now, um, taking a bit of a break from Rossetti. Well, they both sound like excellent projects. And I do want to thank you for taking uh, some time away from them to uh, tell us about your uh, biography of Antonio Rossetti. Sterling, thank you very much. Uh, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.